Where do you see in the World Series this year? I see... All right, boys, we're ready to roll whenever you're ready. Houston. <laughs> Houston. Houston and Dodgers. God, Houston and Dodgers. You love the Dodgers. I like the Dodgers. It's because your Dominican guys are down. No, no, yeah, they traded them to San Diego, right? Well, that... Oh, that Dominican guy? No. Yeah, yeah. But he, we have a, a long relationship with the Dodgers. Uh, my team in the DR. No kidding. Mm-hmm. Well, welcome, everybody. In the studio with me this week is Melvin Perez, one of our senior fellows. Prior to his arrival at Constructs nine years ago, Melvin co-founded Cam Informatica, one of the largest software providers in the Dominican Republic, where he ran the technical division for 14 years. Melvin has a Master of Science degree in Software Engineering from Carnegie Mellon University, and he also completed PhD work at Rochester Institute of Technology. Among the many letters that follow his last name, Melvin is a CSDP, an SBC4, a CSM, a PSM, and a PSD. He has lectured extensively throughout the Americas and is a former IEEE Distinguished Lecturer for Latin America. He's bilingual in English and Spanish, but fortunately for me, he has decided to use English today. Welcome to the podcast, Melvin. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a long intro. Did I leave anything out? Uh, it was it was very extensive, I would say. Um, I'm now afraid. <laughs> uh, you calm down. Uh, you, you know, it, it should be. This is a fun exercise. We're going to have a good time talking about things today. Um, one of the things I mentioned um, is that you um, you kind of you lived in Rochester, New York. I lived in Rochester, New York. We both moved from the second rainiest city to the most rainy city. So we probably share that. That intelligence together, right? Yeah. Something like that. It's an improvement, though. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I definitely think so. It's been a good, it's been a good run. So today, um, we're going to talk about developer testing. Um, and, and when you talk about that, you know, the software uh, industry business has changed over the years. What does, software, what does developer testing mean in today's context? What does it mean in today's environment? Uh, I think uh, the concept hasn't changed much mm-hmm. uh, so we know that when we develop software, we're going to make mistakes at some point. Developers, we're going to make mistakes. And uh, the point of the developer testing is try to discover those defects as early as possible uh, so that we can remove them when it is uh, cheap and easy to do so. Okay. Um, so I would say that what we have seen in the last... 15 years is um, using some, I would say, design approaches that emphasize testing. They start with testing first, things like test-driven development, behavior-driven development. and um, But in terms of the testing techniques that we use and the um, techniques that we use for design test cases um, remain almost the same. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing that is changing right now is that we start writing those tests first to clarify our understanding of what we need to do before we write the code. Um, But at the end of the day, it's about um, uh, reducing that gap between uh, defects that we're introducing and and when those defects are found and removed. Okay. So would you you say that that some of this emphasis has come from the emergence of agile practices as the predominant development practice? Absolutely. Uh, TDD is uh, one of the main practices that emerge from uh, extreme programming. So I think uh, um, the way that this has influenced software development has been mostly driven by that particular practice. Okay. Mm-hmm. But um, so this is really about raising the level of quality mm-hmm. and, and having the, the developers who, who, who maybe traditionally didn't 
play a big role in testing, moving them into the thinking about the, the, the whole product more holistically as opposed to just their segment of what the development practice looks like? Yeah, so essentially is uh, the way we call it is shifting to the left, so shifting some of the stuff that we uh, tend to do toward the end of the project, uh, try to do as early as possible. And testing is one of those things. It's, uh, Validate in what we understand the software need to do, and and is not all we need in order to have quality. We also need to do code inspection that will essentially verify that it's not that software is not just doing what it's expected to do, but also that is well designed. That we don't have, um, I would say, unmanaged complexity of dependencies. So mm -hmm. uh, it's all about that. Trying to do that as early as possible, shifting it to the left, making it part of in a sprint or iteration, depending on the process you use it. Okay. So, realistically, I guess, um, anyone could probably use these. It doesn't matter whether you're an Agile practitioner or you're doing sequential design. You still can think about this in that context, correct? Absolutely. I, I would say that uh, maybe what some people will not necessarily be uh, willing to do is to change the way of thinking when they're developing software. And what I mean by that is not necessarily everybody will be willing to do things in a test-driven development way. And it's something that at first people will reject to say, are you asking me to write tests before I write any single line of code? And right. that is like counterintuitive for them. Um, but aside of that, you can apply all of these uh, testing techniques and ensuring that you are testing as early as possible and, and you know, the smaller chunks as possible. So if you're applying that, I would say, developer testing practices even after you write a code, you're still doing, uh, you know, what is suspected uh, and making sure you're not waiting too long for start testing. You write a function, you can right away write a test to verify that it's working and you're testing after but you are trying to catch those errors as early as possible. Is is equally applicable to, you know, I would say any approach that you use in terms of software sure. development. That's a good answer. I appreciate yeah. that. So um, let's talk about a recent client. Let's talk about something you've done you, you've done recently. You just came back from Southern California. Um, you visited a client down there, and that engagement was about was about developer testing. Um, why were they interested in that? What was the what 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 was the discussion initially with them? Uh, I think the main goal for them was to improve quality um, in general. There was uh, different groups represented in the class, so it was not necessarily uniform. But in the majority of, I would say, the expectations were around how can we improve quality? Um, how can we uh, reduce defects, and by doing that, improve also productivity. And this is a team that deals with telecommunications products, so there are a lot of complexity, a lot of different things, operating systems, hardware, different things like that. Yeah, there were different groups represented. Some of them were working in uh, kind of uh, low-level um, code, and it will be a, embedded you know systems. embedded system right, uh, right. on your cell phone and some others were working on networking applications so di different flavors but I think a, a common theme was um, the amount of complexity and interdependencies between those components that are building okay so I'm gonna ask a, a 
just a series of questions, some different things about the engagement itself and what you saw on the ground. When you do these engagements, I'm sure that you run into some common things that, that all teams seems, seem to raise as an issue, right? Mm-hmm. What, what was the... Give me something that was a common question you fielded during this session that you seem to hit all the time when you teach this yeah. class. Yeah, that is easy to memorize because it's something that I see almost in every every session. Um, so the, the most common question usually is, how do we go about applying these techniques with the existing code that we have that is legacy, that w- it was not designed to be testable? Mm-hmm. And so this is a very common question, so it's a legitimate question, and you know, um, you should say, well, the only way you can do it, the short answer is go ahead and do it, right? Um, but usually, um, along with that question, they will say, well, but we don't have time, uh, we are not being recognized for testing, so how go about it? And you know, I, I said essentially, this is this code that you have right now is the result of not applying these techniques and practices that we are discussing at this point. Okay. And it will stay the same if you don't do anything about it. So the only way that you can change your future with that code, or the future of other developers, is by start, start doing this now. Uh, so every opportunity for changing any line of code in that uh, particular system or something that will touch that system take that opportunity to write a test first to validate or to characterize the current behavior and then go ahead and implement your changes, making sure you're not breaking the legacy code because that's the the deal with the legacy code and we call it the legacy code dilemma is that, you know, it's still there for a reason. It's because it's still valuable. Mm -hmm. It's running the business. Um, So you don't want to break it. The problem is that sometimes you don't have an effective way to recognize when it is broken or when you're breaking it. Right. So t- having tests Testing is a first. good way for you to say, well, this is the current behavior. I'm going to make my change. This test still need to pass. If they are not passing, it seems like I made a mistake and I need to fix it. Right. Um, and, you know, I tell this to all the developers. You don't need to ask for permission to do this. It's part of your professional duty to know that whatever you're implementing is doing the right thing. Um, and I, I typically use an example like if you have a contractor coming to your house and they're going to do maybe they will remodel your bathroom, whatever, um, you would like to have, I would say, a reliable answer and say, do you fix the problem? And if they say, well, we think we've fixed the problem. You go ahead and try. You Sounds will not like how I make my, my repairs in my house. Yeah, so. Right, exactly. <laughs> so um, you have to be, you know, um, professional about it and be able to demonstrate that your software is doing or your changes are implemented correctly. And having automated tests is a good way to do so. So it's a way to kind of, kind of sense the brittleness of what you're doing. So if you if you write a test and something fails, you recognize that if you'd made that change, you'd have made, made maybe a bigger mess than just not not doing anything directly. Right? Correct. You sort of instrument outside and, and test that way? Mm-hmm. Correct. Correct. It's in, and it's just basically a starting point, but there are other, uh, I would say, tips that I share with them. Like, well, we know that it's not necessarily... Uh, trivial every time and if you're going to be making changes to your code to that existing code in order for you to write that first test sometimes you need to change the code 
-hmm. And uh, my advice is to minimize manual integration. So if you can use your tool, uh, nowadays any modern IDE will have refactoring tools. So maybe what you need to do is to add a parameter or introduce an interface or something like that. So you can actually use those refactoring tools that will make a lot of changes for you automatically. Hmm. Um, okay. And that if you don't have the tool, then you're going to have, the concern will be, is this consistent? Did I make this change in all the places that I need to change it? The tool right. will take care of that. Right. So, so that's a way to minimize. kind of make things. That's a way to make things more testable, in, yeah. some, in some respects. And you know, to minimize the risk. So okay. we're making the change to make it more testable, so that you can either manipulate inputs or observe outputs. Um, so, but when you do that change, what you're saying is, what we're doing is minimizing the risk of introducing a defect at that time. Okay. So I have a question about about workflow associated with with um, making changes. If you're supporting, you have an organization that's supporting um, something in the field, right? And, and it's a big legacy application and, and bugs come in and, and, you know, in a traditional agile environment, you move work to the teams, right? Mm -hmm. So how does, a, how does a dev lead or a manager um, deal with that when you do have brittle code and maybe the experience of the engineer is important to whether or not they should work on that problem. Mm -hmm. How do you, how do you, how do you, when you're dealing with that in that environment, how do you know, how do you, how, what would you advise a manager for a piece of code that's really kind of scary? Mm -hmm. You know, I would assume you would probably want to have a more senior engineer work on, on that, uh, that might have more experience with the code base. Is that mm -hmm. an issue that you should consider when people are starting to do this kind of developer testing related environments? Uh, sure. I, I would say that, um, if you have a critical issue on some existing code and you know when you have somebody reporting we have this problem and it's coming from the field usually you have some urgency mm -hmm. so you don't have the luxury to say well let's go ahead and practice these things that you just started using or learning and have this uh, new developer to go ahead and do it so you have somebody <laughs> waiting for that fix um, so you would like to involve whoever is more knowledgeable about that piece of software but take that opportunity to say, is there an opportunity here for us to apply the techniques that we just learned? And maybe pair this senior person with a new developer Great idea. Great idea. so that they can basically start seeing, you know, this is possible. Sometimes they will need to ask for more time to, in order to fix the problem. But it's very likely, every time somebody reports a problem about an area in your code, it's very likely they're going to keep reporting, you know, more problems on that area. Right. And, and the more you go about fixing without making, you know, without having tests, uh, the more liability you have on that. <laughs> yeah, well, those are great answers. Yeah. And that's, a, you know, it's a, I, I tried to put you on the spot, but you did, you did fine. <laughs> <laughs> so here's another question for you. Um, in, in any engagement that, that you're involved in, there's always some moment during the class where um, there's particular teams that might be having a struggle with a particular concept. They're really, you, you try one way, they don't get it. You try another way, they don't get it. You try some other way, they still aren't getting it. Yeah. And you're thinking to yourself, how am I ever going to get past this point? How yeah. do I get these guys to get this? So, <laughs> so what's an example from this last environment, you, the engagement you did, some example of that? that you can share that, that yeah. was a difficult thing to get across. Yeah, those are those uncomfortable moments in which you 
look around, see what can I do now? Maybe call for a break and then, you know, go get some coffee, come back. And, and, and sometimes it's not, it's not, I would say, and I would say most of the time, it's not a matter of the attendee. It's more about the approach you're using for explaining the concept. Or maybe it is sure. uh, disconnected from the domain they're working on or the complexity itself. Um, it's not necessarily something easy to grasp. So in this particular session, something that had that effect was when I was explaining about um, modified condition decision coverage, MCDC. Okay. okay. Um, so this is something that I have on the material that is, is right now I use it optionally because not every organization requires that level of coverage. Just to give you an example, uh, this level of coverage is required when you're building a piece of software that maybe is going to be on the on an airplane, and if there is an error in that area, you know, people so could die. Right. Safe, safer, yeah. critical, safety critical, safety critical. So okay. it is demanded right. by okay. uh, you know FAA. Um, there are some standards for certain. So medical of code. diagnostic equipment might medical be that diagnostic, part. Okay. Yeah, as well. Right. Um, so, but you know, for this team, I decided to explain it because they're getting into. Um, developing components for, let's say, you know, uh, self-driving cars and stuff like that. So okay. eventually, they were gonna sure. need to sure. face this level I hope of. They do. I would say, yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> and um, um, so, um, in order for me to kind of explain this, I have to walk through them, uh, you know, through an example and and explain, you know, try to find an easy way to kind of share some tips about how do you go about uh, ensuring that level of coverage, explaining the difference, why it's important, because um, most of the things we read, when we read about, you know, software that has good quality, some people will refer to, you know, it has 80% coverage. But they don't say coverage of what? Uh, usually they're referring to line coverage or statement coverage. Okay which is the weakest. Um, so if you like to have a stronger, I would say, level of coverage, then you go for branch coverage, which is making sure that every decision in the program has taken both through and false. Um, but that's not the strongest one because sometimes you're gonna have a decision to have multiple conditions and just checking for true and false for the entire decision is not ensuring that you know, every condition is evaluated, um, you know, properly. So that's why we need to have condition and decision coverage. Okay. Now, the way you um, design the test cases may have an impact about, you know, the effectiveness of those tests. So the modify condition decision coverage, what it does is to say, well, if you like to have full coverage, you can test everything. If you have, but that's expensive, right? Yeah, that's expensive. You have right. three conditions, and you need to have eight test cases. Um, but modified decision coverage will do is say, well, we just want to make sure that we test every condition independently. We need to make sure that we test every condition in a way that we can demonstrate that it's that condition that is changing the outcome. So. Gotcha. Creating the test case, it will take a little bit of, I would say, a more uh, thoughtful process about coming up with those test cases. But it's it's really interesting, and I think it could be applicable also in in other uh, kind of contexts. It doesn't have to be safety critical. It could be something that could be, you know, it could be, a, I would say, a business impact 
as right. well. Like right. we may want to have right. that level of coverage. Yeah. Are there are there tools that help you do this, or is this, or is a lot of this relatively manual? I think that there are tools, and they are very expensive. <laughs> okay. Because you know. The people dealing with this level of coverage are people um, typically having good contracts. <laughs> um, and obviously, whoever created a tool for that, it would say, well, I would charge you as, you know, equivalent to how much you're charging for those uh, wow. projects. Wow. So there are tools, but um, I would say that if you uh, manage complexity, because that's the first step, try to minimize complexity so that you don't need to in invest architecture or in, in, in the code internally in the code. Okay. so when the way you make those decisions and how many condition you're testing at the same time um, that is a way for you to manage that complexity mm -hmm. such a way that you're dealing with only certain amount of complexity at any given point so if you're dealing with maximum three conditions then you can do it by hand mm -hmm. uh, now if you have 16 conditions then you have a bigger problem but chances are that the first thing you need to do is to manage that complexity better, reduce it if you like, uh, so that you can do it manually so you don't need the tool. So that is uh, something that I could be actually try before you move into uh, using a tool. Interesting. Yeah. When you're at different clients, how often do you run into uh, to wanting to use this technique? I mean, do you bring it up all the time? Is it something that you... Do you get that in the in the discovery conversation before you go to the client that says, oh, I'm going to probably need to pull this out when I'm there, and so I make room in the class to just to, to cover that topic? Yeah, so essentially before we go to a class, we have what we call a pregame call in which we, um, we have an idea of what kind of software they're building, and, and based on that, I would sense if, if this is going to be relevant or not for them. Okay. And then during the conversation, sometimes people get bored and feel like, oh, I already know that, and say, okay, here's something you don't know for sure. And we can have that conversation. It's definitely um, an intelligent discussion, even if they're just going after branch coverage. And um, after learning about modified condition this decision coverage, they can um, design better test cases. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So this really is something that you would use in these mission critical environments where you, you really want to try and up your coverage. Mm -hmm. what, is, is there a difference in, in those kinds of environments in terms of coverage? I mean, you mentioned an 80% figure as a relative figure. Is that more for commercial software that's non-critical? And, and so the more critical ones would have higher figures that they try and achieve? Or how, does, uh, how, did, how do you think about that in, 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 you know, in terms of a numeric or a measurement type of a uh, situation? I, I would say that you know, the 80% the number is across the industry. And you know, okay. it's kind of a, that generic number people use to, to refer to, oh, that's good quality or good testing. Okay. Um, but uh, just from the top of my head, uh, remembering some of the standards that require certain level of coverage, um, there will be certain area of the code. If you have, let's say, we are building an application for, let's say, an airline, mm -hmm. um, and you have some code that we have to do with uh, seat assignment. For that level of, or for that type of code, they don't ask you to have MCDC coverage. They will say statement coverage, and it doesn't have to be 100%. But there will be some other code for which they will require, you know, a higher level of coverage. And I think it's, it is better to think that way um, because it will make the organization to think about, you know, where we should make that investment and try to get this level of coverage. It's kind of a risk-based approach. Okay. Um, so you're making sure that 
you're making more investment in areas that are more So this uh, does critical. fall into sort of its definition of risk-based testing. Correct. In, in a larger uh, context. Correct. Interesting. Okay. Correct. Well, I think we have time for one more question. We have one um, one more topic I think we can explore. I think when when we have um, technical service providers like yourself go out into the field, there are definitely times when you're with a class and there's a, a particular topic um, that gets people really energized. People get like, wow, this is, we, we need this. And, and, you know, people close their laptops, they put their phones down, they elbow the guy sleeping next to him <laughs> and say, this, we need to pay attention to this guy when he's talking. Are you in my right? class? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? We need to, you know, and they come back in from the break and they say, you know, this is the part we, yeah. we all paid for to come and see. So mm. in this particular engagement, when you were down in California, um, was there something that got people really excited that they really wanted to try? That, that they're, they hadn't been doing it, you introduced the concept, and they all kind of went, all the lights went on and said, yeah. you know, this is something that we want to do. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, so in this class, after we cover like the more, um, let's say, developer-oriented techniques, like boundary value analysis, decision tables, now you got me design asleep. by I'm contract. Now. Yeah, so <laughs> after we cover all that, we say, right. well, if you're applying all of these techniques, it's very likely that you're going to catch much of the most of the defects. Um, but then I talk about something else, like. What do you have, if you have an environment in which you have different factors, it could be like the configuration of a system mm -hmm. in which you have, um, you know, different network protocols that you're going to support, you have different operating systems that you're going to support, you have different databases you're going to support, you have different um, UIs that you're going to support. And, you know, at first you may think, well, you know, all of these factors are involved, but they are not necessarily related. Mm -hmm. But sometimes they do. Sometimes, you know, in this particular interface, you don't see this problem. When you go and use it in your cell phone, then you see a problem. Say, is the same software behind this? Why is this not working? So combinatorial testing. So I would say that testing in general is, is a combinatorial problem. So you're always dealing with multiple variables. Every variable can take any number of possibilities. It's almost intractable. It's a, yeah. it's a big problem. Yeah. Right? So when you try to, let's say, have sufficient coverage in that environment, if you have, let's say, five variables and each variable can take five possibilities, we're talking about 125 test cases. Right. And if we're thinking in terms of physical cons configurations and you need to put together those 125 uh, configuration to test the software, we're talking about a huge investment and something will take forever. So um, there is a technique that is called pairwise testing. Okay. Oh, all Tell me pairs. about this. Yeah. So in this technique, what we do, and, and I think it's true for all the testing techniques, what we try to do is to take this high number of test cases that you need for full coverage and reduce it in a way that you have effective testing. It will not have the same level of coverage, but it's effective because you're testing the things that are likely. Uh, so you're making an assumption of what would likely be a problem. Correct. Right. Is there some mathematical research that went into coming up with this, this methodology? Yes, definitely. There, uh, there is a research about um, how many factors are typically involved in most of the defects. And this has been done in you know, medical devices, uh, you know, operating systems, different kind of systems. So they start collecting 
data about the muscle, the defects, how many factors were involved. So the majority of the defects comes from one factor. In other words, if you're testing, applying all of those techniques like boundary value analysis, looking at one variable at a time, you're gonna catch a significant number of errors. But then the next will be two factors. Um, so if you test for up to two factors, you're gonna catch around 80% of the defects. Oh, wow. okay. So you rarely would have <coughs> defects that was because of the combination of three different you know, factors or four or five. So as you start moving on, you start seeing, well, this is kind of a, saturating. Say, yeah, I start getting down. It's, um, um, so based on that research, what this uh, technique does is just make sure that you're testing every pair. Okay. So if you take any two factors and you look at the possibility, you're gonna make sure that there is a test, test, testing each combination between those two factors. And you can do it for any two factors um, that you have. So that reduces this, the number of test cases significantly. So, um, and one thing that I do kind of to open their eyes is to use an example. And for this, I use a tool. I would recommend to use a tool because you know, if not, then it's going to be very tedious to do. Right. So I have an example in which I have nine variables, and each variable takes three possible values. Mm -hmm. So if you start multiplying these three by three nine times, this right. is like 20,000 test cases. Right. And then I run the tool. Job say, security. I <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I start basically saying, okay, let me generate uh, the test cases according to all pairs. And from 20,000 test cases, we get down to 15 test cases. And that is like, and that's, yeah, when, and that's when they all leaned in. Exactly. That's when they all said, I, exactly. I like what this guy's saying. And they start thinking about all those different uh, dependencies and factors that are affecting their, their software. The software is, you know, you can't imagine the communication software. Um, if it's something that's going to be living in your cell phone, how many factors are involved in order to sure. maybe make a phone call or, you know, maybe go and check in your Facebook. <laughs> so Hypothetically <all> speaking. <laughs> yeah. yes. So um, they start thinking about, well, we have a lot of that. And how can we... If you like to have some confidence without investing, you know, half the project in testing, this could be definitely valuable. So that, that was that moment. And they start basically taking notes and uh, looking at the name of the tool. It's a freeware tool that is called Axe that they can go and download and use for this, uh, for this example. So that, that was that uh, moment that in moment. the class. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So have you found a fair amount of clients that don't do this or don't know about this? Is this, a, is this kind of a, maybe half of your people you talk to that haven't used that before? I would say that in the majority of the classes, um, uh, people don't know about pairwise testing. Um, okay. It readily, maybe one or two of the attendees will be familiar with it or have heard of it, especially if it's coming from you know uh, a tester background. Given that this class is for developers, it is not surprising that they will not know about, you know, uh, pairwise testing right, because right. it's more of it's a, more a traditional testing environment. Correct. So, would you, because this reduces the number of tests that have to be written, is this, would this be seen as something that you might not adopt in a safety critical or mission critical environment, or is this something you still might use or might apply in that? I, I would still use it, uh, okay. essentially because. It is based on evidence that, you know, 
this will catch, you know, 80% or more of the defects, right? Um, and even in those environments, you are also constrained by time, budget. So you definitely would need to find a way how to reduce the number of test cases and still be effective. Now, one thing that I will do, given that this tool will generate, you know, these are the combinations. Maybe in those environments, there is a particular combination that you want to test. So you may generate all of these 15 test cases, and then you start adding additional configuration that, you know, is very common. It would be, you know, I would say um, very critical for us to test environment. If we have a problem, it could be a big deal. Then you can add additional test cases as you need. To bolster, the, to yeah. bolster the, the, the amount you do. Correct. That's an interest. That's an interesting perspective. So you do the... Use a tool to do some of this, and then and then go back through with some other level of, yep. you know, are there other tools you run to do the analysis to try and see how much co coverage you have, um, and then sort of make a decision at that point whether you add additional manual tests or. Um, yeah, definitely you can um, having let's say these fifteen inputs, this combination that we have. Mm -hmm we can create test cases. This is just generating the inputs. It's not generating the test case. Right. Because right. in order okay. for it to be a test case, you need to know what is the expected output, and that's only um, you would know. So uh, let's say we have those test cases, we execute those tests, and we can measure code coverage. Okay. And we can see if anything here, any area of the code that is not being uh, tested according to any criteria, then we can add. Um, uh, but sometimes, it, you know, you cannot replace the, the human being, right? So right. you cannot just apply this technique blindly or take those inputs generated by that tool and just apply it feel like you, you got it all. You need to take some time to look at it and say, is there anything that we're missing? Even if you have, you may have 100% code coverage, but code coverage is measure, measuring how much of the code is being exercised and not necessarily looking at uh, some extraordinary condition or something that is not reflected in the code itself. So. Those are the moments that you may say, well, we have 100% coverage, we have these 15 test cases, but there is one combination that we know is very common and is not being used here. We, need, we know that these five factors, or these, uh, I would say, uh, instances of these five factors will happen very often. If we have a problem here, it's gonna be a big, a big, big problem. problem. So right. you go ahead and say, we need to add that additional test case, and, and that's how you make it effective. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I think that's all the time we have today. Thank you, Melvin, for that discussion. I think those are really good topics, really interesting. This is certainly a really wide topic, lots of things to talk about. You're certainly passionate about this particular area, and so I thank you for your insight on this particular client's issues and some of the resolutions you had. It's really helpful, and I appreciate you sharing the knowledge. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So uh, be sure to tune in next time for another edition of Constructs Podcast. Until then, this has been Mark Griffin. Have a great next sprint. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you found us. If you have comments or would like to talk to one of our practitioners, or you have ideas for a future podcast, reach out via email using comments at constructs.com. Again, that's comments at constructs.com. We'd love to hear from you.